This is the last vision of the second half of the book. This is the fourth one. But we will just, we will just see the introductory matters to the vision today in chapter 10. And there will be much for us here as we uh, learn about the God who strengthens We have used that phrase for the entirety of this series, the God of heaven, the God of heaven who reigns, the God of heaven who rules, the God of heaven who removes from power, the God of heaven who restores to power, the God of heaven who sees all things, the God of heaven who hears the prayers of his children. And then today we will see uh, the God of heaven who strengthens his own. I will read Daniel chapter 10. And then we will look to see how he strengthens his own in today's text. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed by Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground." Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words." But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless." And behold, one who was resembled a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O oh my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I've retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. This one with human appearance touched me again, And strengthened me. He said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. 
So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these except Michael, your prince. Something, isn't it? It's going to be good to see what God has for us today. May he strengthen us according to his word. Well, on the topic of strength, question for you. How strong do you feel this morning? Might produce a follow-up question, a corollary. How do we gauge our strength? What makes us feel strong? If we're just talking purely on the physical level, you can test your physical strength by dropping down and doing some push-ups right now. Or you can ask Bill Johncock to go on a run with you after church and see how strong you feel running with him. If it's a test of mental strength, uh, don't do this now, of course, but, you know, do some Wordle or Sudoku or um, talk to Casey DePel about jet propulsion and see how smart you feel. One person got that joke. If we're going to say emotionally strong, watch your kids while your wife is on the women's retreat. And then in the midst of the madness, have a well-intentioned brother text you from a coffee shop saying, hey, friend, just enjoy these days. They're fleeting. While he sips his latte and reads theology. <laughs> thanks, but no thanks. The reality is we have a lot of ways to gauge our physical and mental and emotional strength. But the question that I'm asking is, how do you gauge your spiritual strength? Last I checked, you just can't buy a spiritual strength test at Dollar General. I grew up in a church where, you know, you'd hear kind of phrases tossed around, especially in the youth ministry ranks. My youth pastor would, you know, talk to me about certain students in the youth group. And, uh, you know, I remember one time him saying, you know, that guy, he doesn't have a spiritual bone in his body. To which I was wondering, does my youth pastor possess some spiritual x-ray machine so as to judge who has spiritual bones and who doesn't, and maybe the, the uh, relative strength of those things? I can't answer the question necessarily of how do you know the level of your spiritual strength right now? And even if you could, and the diagnostic read back to you today, weak, now the question becomes, what can you do about it? If you would have some reading that says you are doing spiritually poor, you are weak, how could you actually become strong? Because my hunch is, that a true Christian, a genuine believer, desires to be strong. Based just purely on reading the Bible and on dozens of occasions throughout the Old and New Testament, we are given a command. And you know what that command is? Be strong and courageous. 
from Joshua chapter one, six through nine, repeated three times, be strong and courageous, repeated again in, in Psalm 27, 14, or 31, 24, be strong and let your heart take courage. You can flip over to the New Testament and you get that same sentiment from the apostle Paul in Ephesians six ten. be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, or Second uh, Timothy 2, 1, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Make no bones about it. God wants you, his child, to be strong. Can we all agree on that? So he wants his children to be strong. The question is, how? How do I gain spiritual strength? I would imagine we all ask ourselves that question from time to time, and maybe we don't always know where exactly to go to find the answer. My guess is most of us haven't turned to Daniel 10 before to find a description of how the God of heaven strengthens, but we're about to see it now. So let's follow today's action in Daniel chapter 10 and see three truths about being strong so that we can be, our, where our heart is at this morning, I would imagine, is that we can become the person that we want to be because of who God created us to be, right? That, that our desire would match up with what God desires for us, which is to be strong in him. So let's look at three ways in which uh, we become strong. And uh, I'll say at the outset, they will appear counterintuitive. As in the way up to strength is actually the way down. Starting with the first one, to become strong, we need reminded of the weakness within us. First step on the pathway to spiritual strength is being reminded of the weakness that is within you. We hear that in Daniel. You already did in the amount of times in chapter 10 he referred to being weak. And that's just not a chapter 10 thing. If you've been paying attention from the time that Daniel gets really personal in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, as in he stops talking about everyone else's visions and he starts talking about his own. And that's how he's arranged this book. Chapters one to six, he just took you through and reported the facts about his life and others around him in one through six. But then when he turns the corner in seven to 12 to get personal and say, hey, now let me tell you about some of the visions I've received from God. They humbled him because they revealed his weakness. Just follow along in the action, a quick recap. Chapter seven begins with year one of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, and Daniel saw dreams and visions in his mind. What did they lead him to? Verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. He did not go around saying, hallelujah, I've been given a vision of the future from God, and I'm feeling great about it. You know, it's about time he recognized my greatness and inner strength in being able to receive direct revelation from him. Quite the opposite. In chapter 7, he's distressed. He's alarmed by it. And uh, look at the end of chapter 7, verse 28. After the revelation ended, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale. Same type of description in our chapter today. He lost color 
And he kept the matter to himself. And so chapter 7, in 553, first year of Belshazzar, he's feeling distressed, alarmed, terrified, confused, losing color. How about chapter 8, three years later, any better? In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king of vision appeared to him. Um, how does he feel in the aftermath of that? Well, look over to verse 17. Gabriel comes near him. And he is frightened and he falls on his face. Again, similar to what we read today. And it was like he, in his fainting state, was like in a deep sleep with his face to the ground. And even after Gabriel picks him up and tries to strengthen him, verse 27, end of chapter 8, I, Daniel, was exhausted. Notice he's always saying, I, Daniel. This is really personal. He is being transparent. He said, this is me, the great Daniel of Babylon, deep into my ministry, Look what's going on in my heart. Look what's going on in my soul. I am exhausted and sick. I was astounded as in I was appalled at the vision. And I was confused. Nobody could explain it. So there you go. Nothing's changing. How about chapter 9 in the first year of Darius? Now around 539 when good news Israel's going to be let free after 70 years. He reads in Jeremiah 25 and 29. What's his prayer like? Is it this prayer of victory we saw? No. It was a prayer of brokenness and confession. Who are we to come before you and to go back to our land in the sinful state that we're in? Here are supplications, verse 18, but not on account of our merits or goodness, but on your compassion. And then at the end of chapter 9, He's still feeling the same way. Verse 21, while I was still speaking, Gabriel comes and he sees me in my extreme weariness. Notice the pattern. Well, it really comes to, to a height of distress when, let me just read through 8, 9, 10, 11, 15, 16, and 17. It, it's, it's the worst of the worst when it comes to him being weak. Three years after that first vision in chapter 9, here he is three years later. Verse 8, no strength was left in me. My color changed to a deathly white. Verse 9, I fell on my face with face to the ground. Verse 10, trembling on my hands and knees, I stood up trembling. Verse 15, I turned my face to the ground and became speechless. Verse 16, pain came on me and I retained no strength. Verse 17, no strength remained in me and no breath. So let me ask you the question now. With all that weakness on display in Daniel's life, would we be so quick to say, what a strong Christian. You know, we like to use that cliche around the church. That brother or sister is a strong Christian. Would we say that about Daniel after what he has said about himself? It's that the closer he seems to get to the Almighty, the more weak he becomes. The closer the communion, the, the greater the reality no greater than the reality of what was the cause of his weakness in chapter 10. It was this not vision of a dream. Notice in 5 through 9, this is not a dream. He was by the Tigris River. He was hanging out there. Who knows why? Maybe in his retirement, he's about 85. And um, this Cyrus, the king, who three years earlier let Israel go back. Daniel doesn't go back. Maybe he gives him a retirement condo down by the Tigris. You know, it's the cradle of civilization. History. But look at the reality of 
five to nine. Look what he sees and then the effect it has on him. He might have had some dreams and visions that caused him distress, but now in the presence of someone unlike anything or anyone he has seen before, he is broken. He is undone. It sounds a lot like Isaiah in chapter six when he sees a vision of the Lord high and lifted up and he can't bring himself to speak until an angel brings a coal to touch his filthy lips. That's how Daniel responds to this. Does it fit our description of a strong Christian Probably no more than the description we get of another strong believer, but a weak man in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul was awesome. Don't get me wrong. Missionary to the Gentile world. Set apart to take the gospel uh, farther and in, in, in deeper in the teaching he was giving than anyone. So, of all people, Paul could have had some reason to be like, hey, check out my credentials Look at my resume. Look, look how much good I've done. But listen to Paul's spiritual autobiography in 1 Corinthians 2, 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. 1 Corinthians 4.10. We are fools for Christ's sake. We are weak. We are without honor. 2 Corinthians 11.30. If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my Weakness. So Paul's own self-estimation. Some of us, if we heard somebody talk like that, if you had a person you're discipling and they wanted to meet with you and that was how they were talking, what would your instinct be? It would probably be try to, no, no, don't, you're just being too self-examining uh, uh, and, and you, you just need to fire yourself up. You're not so bad. Don't be such an Eeyore. You might even rebuke this person for too low of a self-image. But this is Paul describing himself. Weak is the word he best describes himself with. And the truth of the matter is I was reflecting on it, I guess, on, you know, my side of the equation, working in pastoral ministry, having looked over resumes and put a job description out to my shame, and it's probably not me only, but I have yet to read a resume that says, you know what you're really going to get with me? A weak pastor. And you know, when I put the ad out for the jobs that we've posted, I've never put in there, looking for weak Christian. Makes you think, doesn't it? kind of the flipped upside down way we operate. We want the strong pastor, the visionary, the guy that's going to charge the hill because of greater things ahead. Why would Paul put weakness on his resume for all the churches of all time to read? The answer is in 2 Corinthians 12:9. Here's why he boasts in weakness. The Lord Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. That's why it made his resume. Because the Lord Jesus Christ said, 
when you're weak, I'm strong. And that's the way this is going to work. So Paul could go on to say, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Notice the word dwell. As in, I'm not just going to give it like a passing glance as sometimes we do when we're, you know, we're not being totally honest and we just want to kind of let people, have people leave us alone. We might throw out the, yeah, I'm just so weak. But do we really mean it? Or is it just kind of like, uh, let, me, let me just put out the, the idea that I'm humble enough to admit my weaknesses. No, Paul says, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that what? The power of Christ doesn't just visit me. It comes and goes, but it dwells with me. That's the word abide. It sticks with me. His power won't leave me as long as I don't leave what? The idea that I'm actually a very weak person. Because the moment I stop believing that I'm weak and start reading my own press of my own strength, his power is not dwelling with me anymore. And then he can leave me on my own and say, well, let's just see what you can do by yourself, shall we? Let's just see how strong you are. The point is, the secret to Daniel's strength and Paul's strength and your strength as a Christian is your weakness. And weaknesses, friend, aren't as unhelpful as they might first appear. Why? Because when your weaknesses are revealed, they make you rely on God's grace to give you strength, as Paul said, that the power of Christ would dwell in you. And, and just taking that and stating it very simply, in my life, when I am under the false impression that Adam is strong, then I proceed to live in a way that basically says, God, I don't need you. I'm good. I'm good. When I believe the hype, I mean... I should have recognized in my own life to this point, just in the non-spiritual categories. Anytime I thought I was something physically, mentally, or whatever. Life just gave me the humble reminder that you're not all that you think you are. I can rewind the tape and see that there's not too many highlights worth passing on. And that's just in the realm that I can see. But if I take a true account of my spiritual life, if I would have really believed my own press at whatever moment I was in my spiritual journey and put strength in Adam, I would have eventually seen that that wasn't me. That was God doing that good thing. But when I start going off on my own to think I'm strong in myself, then I'm essentially saying, I don't need God. And that's never a good thing. So God, in his wisdom and kindness and love, when he sees Adam being strong in himself, what does he do? He sends me a trophy. Says, first place, strongest Christian ever. That's what you get, isn't it? When you're doing really strong spiritually, God sends you a trophy. When you're strong in yourself, 
He doesn't send you a trophy. What's he send you? A trial. Why a trial? Why not a trophy? Because a trial is going to do what to you? It's going to bring you back to reality. What reality is he going to bring you back to? That you need him. And how particularly will he do that? He'll get you on your face, not just your knees. He'll get you on your face, like Daniel in verse 9, face to the ground. I know that's not the best place to be in our thinking, but Lamentations seems to take us that direction. I'm sure we all really love Lamentations 3, 23. The Lord's loving kindnesses never cease. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We like that. It's usually those verses we should just know, keep reading. Because this is what's ahead. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. Lamentations 3.25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since God has laid it on him. Verse 29. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. But do I see them when my face is in the dust? Daniel did. Paul did. Do I? And do you? When he sends the trial your way to reveal your weakness, do you thank him for it? Because what he's doing is he's removing something in that moment. He's removing our pride. Or at least what's left of it. Which it's why in our Christian life it's a never-ending process because we've not gotten to the depths of our pride, have we? So, and, and I just got a no, sir, from probably the oldest man in here. So thank you for testifying. But it's true. It goes deeper still. And he's willing to be patient with us and work out our pride by revealing our weakness. But it's just, as I said at the beginning of this, so counterintuitive to how we are trained to think we'll become stronger. I remember seeing in my football playing days a t-shirt. There was a brand called No Fear. Some of y'all may remember the No Fear shirts. And, you know, it would just have some, you know, phrase on there to make you think you can do all things. And uh, I don't it wasn't a Christian brand. It was, you know, because it would have like a dog driving a motorcycle or something and say, no fear. Um, but one of the shirts said, pain is weakness leaving the body. And I remember seeing that and thinking, I think that's true, you know. If I'm lifting weights and I'm feeling sore afterwards, yeah, that's the weakness leaving my body. And I was thinking about that when it comes to weakness and trials and what God does, and I've changed it to this. If, if pain is weakness leaving the body, 
Weakness is pride leaving my soul. Isn't it? When you feel the spiritual weakness of where God has you right now, if he has your face in the dust, isn't that the sense of he's, he's just uprooting the pride in me? Whatever thing I was still thinking I was without him, he's willing to put my face in the dust to pull it out, to, to uproot the pride that's still deep down in me. And that feeling of weakness and brokenness and transparency and honesty about it should be what I then say, okay, I don't like this, but it is the weakness of my pride being pulled out. So I can at least thank you for that, Lord. I can at least thank you for that. And we usually are doing that like Daniel was in chapter 10, praying as we see he was doing in the beginning of the chapter Mourning and fasting, all of that can go with it. But the reality is God's willing to humble us, to show us our need for him and make us dependent. A.W. Tozer summarized it in this line. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And I know some of you get that. Some of you are learning that. And some of you just need to know that might be in, in the future. At some point. If God's going to bless you greatly, spiritually speaking, the Psalm 1 blessing, the prospering that matters, not the worldly kind, but the spiritual kind, the kind that's going to make you more like Christ, he's going to hurt you deeply, not as one who is careless and callous, but as a caring and compassionate and loving father. So I guess we need reminded, like Daniel did in this first point, that our all-powerful God doesn't need our strength, but he wants our weakness. Now that's just step one. Let's see what else was going to produce strength in Daniel in this time. It wasn't just realizing the weakness in him. It was going to be a realization of the war around him. So jump back in the text. There was, there was some circumstances going on around Daniel that he definitely, if we understand where we are in the story of Israel, and even in the time of Medo-Persia coming into power, that would have caused Daniel, look at verse 2, mourning. It's back in verse 1 where he gives kind of a, um, a preface to this last section. And he's, he, he's talking in the third person. He's setting it up saying, here's where we are. We're in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And immediately we go, wait, so this is after Ezra 1. Cyrus has sent Israel back out of exile. But yet, there was a message that God had for Daniel that was true, and it was about one thing, great conflict. So if it wasn't enough that God was going to humble Daniel in his weakness within, he was going to let him in on something going on around him, the reality of life in a fallen world, that great conflict is still ahead. Because if you read that, you're thinking, hasn't he already survived it? He had to go to Babylon. He had to be there 70 years. He's 85. Can't he catch a break? Why does it have to still be more conflict? Babylon's gone. Now it's a new kingdom. And, and we know going back that Daniel did okay in the new kingdom. The end of Daniel chapter 6, he enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus. So 
It's, it's not that he's personally being troubled. The only thing that could be troubling him now would be what? The prosperity of God's people because he cared about them. Chapter nine, that's who he was praying for. All the sin he was confessing. And so here he is and it's three years after they've been allowed to return two to three years. And if you go to Ezra chapter one and read all the way to chapter four, you'll see the great and glorious hope they had for rebuilding the city and rebuilding the wall and rebuilding the temple. Where does it leave him by chapter four? Face in the dust. Some enemies of Israel came along in chapter 4 and said, we're going to put a halt to this building project. And Daniel, I'm sure, by the prestige position he had achieved still in Medo-Persia, would have been well aware of the travails of Israel. Now that's the problem going on over there, the war around him. But he also could have been bummed about not everybody went back. Maybe that's what had him so disappointed. We know from Ezra chapter 2, verse 64, that when they took a census, the whole assembly numbered 42,360. And other historians from that time period estimate that there could have been 80,000 to 100,000 Jews still back in Babylon. Do you think that might have broke his heart? All that praying he did? The love he had for his city, that his people would finally get to go back, and then maybe more than half of them were like, nah. You know, we, we, we did obey the idea of, of Jeremiah chapter 29 that said, hey, prosper, build your places, you know, work for the good of Babylon. But God did not say, and when I send you back to stay, just because you have a thriving business and, and you got, you're raising grandkids over in Babylon and you're comfortable that you can forget that this isn't where you're supposed to stay. So what was going around Daniel was something that brought him to a point of brokenness for his people to the point that he's praying for three weeks, 21 days, verse three, didn't eat any tasty food, meat or wine, uh, ointment, as in that would have been maybe something more to do with uh, something he rem he's remembering from the priestly system. Because remember, he doesn't forget where he came from. We looked at that in chapter 9 when he still knew the time of day when the sacrifices would be offered 70 years later. So here, and in fact, if you 24th day of the first month, why, when's he doing this fast? During Passover. First month. So for, during that time period when he should be celebrating Passover, he is in a period of mourning. But see, that was just the tip of the iceberg. As in the, the, the sadness and brokenness that he's feeling over his people that he has been praying for over the last few years isn't the thing that really undoes him. It's that there is something far greater happening around him that God wanted him to know to strengthen him. And that gets us to verses 10 to 17. He is face to the ground, and then verse 10, a hand touches him, sets him trembling. He doesn't even get up off of his knees yet. He's, he's still face down, trembling on his hands and knees at the sight of whoever it was that he just saw. But then an angel comes and speaks to him and says, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright. So Daniel, being obedient to the angel's call, stands up trembling and then here's the news that this angel was sent to bring. Verse 12, he said to me, don't be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day, when would that have been? 21 days ago. 
from the first day you set your heart on understanding and on humbling yourself before God, here's the good news. Your words were heard, and I've come in response to your words. Now, I'm a sucker for the white space, but I would imagine he could have turned at that point and looked at this angel and said, you know, the last guy got here in like eight seconds. What took you 21 days? I mean, the last guy, the moment I was done praying, Gabriel shows up to strengthen me. What possibly, this has been a 21-day thing. I haven't been eaten. I'm 85. I'm getting hungry here. It doesn't say any of that. It's the white space. But the reason the angel would have given comes in 13. Here's what held me up. You okay with this one? The prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me. That same three-week time period that he's been praying and fasting tells us this. His prayer was heard immediately and the answer from God was given immediately. Does God need time to make up his mind when you pray? He doesn't. He has the answer right away. So the timing of his response to us, well, that's in his sovereign plan. But in this case, Daniel's going to get the reason why he didn't get his answer right away. This angel was sent to give him a message in response to his words, and he gets held up by some demonic prince of the kingdom of Persia. That word prince, other places in the Old Testament, it's one of those words that can be used as angelic or demonic forces, but the basic idea of prince is that some ruler, some unseen power working within the kingdom of Persia withstood him. Because if you take it and say, no, I think the real prince of the kingdom of Persia, I mean... A human king fighting an angel for 21 days? I don't know. And he's so strong that Michael the archangel from Jude 9 and Revelation 12 has to like tag team in for an elbow drop? I mean, that's if you read on in verse 13. Behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, who we know Michael is the archangel, came to help me because I had been left there fighting all the kings of Persia. So it's a real royal rumble here. There's demonic kings of Persia fighting against this first angel, and Michael has to be tagged in to overcome them so that this angel could get to Daniel with a message. And what's the message? Verse 14. I want to give you an understanding of what's going to happen to your people, because that's what this has been all about. This has been all about what's going on in the lives of God's people, Israel. But it's in the latter days. Your vision, Daniel, that I'm about to give you in chapter 11 is for days yet to come. Now, realizing all this is going on around him, is he strengthened yet? He's already been weakened. Is he strengthened for this? Look at verse 15. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. God's not done working on him yet, is he? Imagine that. Because look back at verse 10. I mean, it's kind of like the fighter getting up off the ring. You know, he gets up to his hands and knees and then he stands up trembling and then he's right back down on his face speechless when he hears, I thought it was just Israel struggling with uh, some enemies, trying to rebuild Jerusalem. I thought just some people lost their drive to go back. You're telling me behind all this, there's a spiritual war going on? Thanks. And guess what, friend? Your life is no different. Your life is no different. If we're going to be strong, one, God has to make us weak and see the weakness within ourselves. 
But then we have to really understand what we're up against outside of us and what's going on all around us. And it doesn't just terminate on the things we can see. The reality is here for Daniel, and so it is for us, that there is an unseen war being waged. And your prayers have something to do with that. Whatever Daniel was doing, whatever Daniel was praying, had something to do with everything going on in a place he couldn't see. Now you might say, how is that strengthening? Well, because what it propels us to do. When we know what's going on behind the scenes, when Daniel finds out what's going on behind the scenes, I then can act courageously for my God in prayer rather than draw back in fear. If I really know of the warfare going on that I can't see, I mean, if I just buy the Hollywood junk of what spiritual warfare, demons and angels is about, maybe I would live in fear. But that's not at all what it's about. That's mere child's play. Because that has nothing to do with eternal spiritual realities. What Daniel is de dealing with here, and if you turn to Ephesians 6, what we believers deal with is battles and, and things going on in the heavenlies that have to do with people's souls. That's what's going to be really at stake here. Something beyond that what we can just look for human explanations and understanding. Ephesians 6 lays it out for us. And it's not by chance that this is the last thing Paul writes to these believers in Ephesus, which was a city riddled with false gods. And where there are false gods, there are demonic forces. Because the devil's a liar. Where you see false religion, you see satanic activity. Who else would come up with it? So at the end of this letter to the Ephesians, telling them all the ways in which they need to walk in a manner worthy of their calling and, and everything that they can see around them, walk in wisdom, walk in love, walk in the light, he ends with, but I need you to stand strong because there's something that you don't realize, believer, that is going on around you that, that you just can't walk your way through this thing. You need to be able to stand. Well, how are we to stand strong according to Ephesians 6, verse 10? It's what I read at the beginning. We're strong in the Lord. Did it say be strong in you? Where's your strength? It's in your union with Christ. And in the strength of your might? Okay, so I stand in the Lord, but then it's the strength of my might. It's not how the text reads. All your strength is in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So you want to talk about spiritual warfare today? You know, I listened to a lot of preaching up to this point on this chapter, and people are just itching to jump into stuff about territorial demons. Is that what we should be after? Is that the path we should go down? No. What does Ephesians 6.10 say to do? Now that you know there's some battle raging, you need to put on the full armor of God to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. What's your struggle against? Things you can see, flesh and blood? No, just like Daniel's wasn't. 
What's it against? Rulers, powers, world forces of the darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Okay, we get it. There's a major conflict going on in the heavenlies. There is demonic hierarchy, strategy, attacks. All of that is 100% true for those that like to think about that. But lest we become fanatical about that realm, here's what Paul tells us to do. Put on the armor of God to stand strong in the Lord. And what does the armor of God entail? Well, you read about it. Put the belt of truth on, the breastplate of righteousness, have the gospel of peace on your feet, take up the shield of faith. That all sounds like the gospel and all of the blessings I have in Jesus. So it's not a throwaway line to tell somebody, be strong in the Lord. That played out, how do I have a defense against something spiritual that I sense going on in my life? It is rooting and grounding myself in my relationship with Jesus Christ, my union with Christ. That's how you fight a spiritual battle. That's what the New Testament calls you to do. That in light of hierarchies and darkness and forces, it doesn't say form a spiritual warfare committee and try to find out who the territorial demons are in Hickory, North Carolina. Can't find it. It says you personally, starting with your own Christian life, strengthen yourself in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Start there. And how does the gospel of Jesus strengthen me? Well, if I've ever felt under spiritual attack, cutting through all the clutter of what could be going on, here's what I know what will defend me. Romans 8. That's what defends me. When I feel in despair, when I feel far from God, heavy laden with sin, not able to make any progress in my spiritual life. I fight with Romans 8.1. Do you? There is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That's my starting point. But then it's not my ending point because it wasn't Paul's. I mean, praise God, Romans 8 is not just one verse. It'd be cool because then we could say we memorized a whole chapter of the Bible by just knowing Romans 8.1. But follow Paul's logic, what starts with, I know I'm not condemned if I'm in Jesus. So whatever lie Satan can tell me about my sin, and even if he gets the entire host of his demonic hierarchy to tell me, Adam, you lost it, you blew it, you're nothing. Starting point, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Ending point, no angel, nor principality, nor life, nor death can do what? Separate me from the love of God and Jesus. There's your spiritual warfare. You want to fight? Fight at the level of the gospel. That's what will hold you. Now notice what I was fighting with. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ, my righteousness, is my defense. But what weapons was I, were I using? Was, were, I don't know. I was using the sword of the Spirit to fight, which is the Word of God. So what's, what's my offense 
If I needed the gospel of Christ, my righteousness is my defense. My offense is full of the Spirit, using his word, 18 and 19, in prayer. How about that for spiritual warfare today? Defend yourself in the righteousness of Jesus Christ that you are united to him by faith. And then go on the attack with his word and prayer, walking in the Spirit. Or you could try to find some other path forward. There's a lot of books you can read on it. But I don't think you can improve upon Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 for how to fight a spiritual war. Christ is how you fight it. And the weapons that Christ gave you won for you. He, he purchased your salvation and he sent his spirit and gave you his word. You want more? There isn't more. You got everything you need. Praise God for that. He knew exactly what we would need in sending us his spirit to indwell in us and giving us his word and telling us to access that power through communion in the spirit and prayer. And that's why you see the emphasis in Ephesians 6, 18 to 20 on pray. Pray at all times. Pray in the spirit. Pray with perseverance. Pray on his behalf. Whatever you do, pray. Back to Daniel. We fight at the level that Scripture calls us to fight. It didn't surprise me then when I meditated upon that and thought about how Daniel, I mean, now Daniel's doing this 2,500 years before I'm standing here preaching this out of the closed canon, the Word of God. What did he, what did he have? Well, look, this all got started back in Daniel chapter 9 by him reading the Word and praying. What changes? Nothing. Daniel fought the same way we fight, the word and prayer. And back in verse 18 of Daniel 9, knowing that his righteousness wasn't his own, it was the compassion of God. But there's one more way in which we get strong. The, um, the good news after this, I, I guess you could call it, I don't call it bad news, but it's, 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 it's hard news to know there's weakness within me. There's war going on around me. But that war going on around me shouldn't discourage me. It should promote in me a greater fervor and zeal to fight. But really, I need to recognize the person that goes ahead of me in all this. And that's where Daniel ends. And that's how he finally is strengthened. He recognized there was a warrior that went ahead of him. And that's actually where we see the tide turn in this chapter to strength. Look at verse 18. Then this one, look, Daniel has just said, he, he responds and says, I have no strength left. I have no breath left. You have told me something that has weakened me and I see the conflict ahead. I got nothing. And so then what does the angel have to do? The angel touches him and strengthens him. Now the strength isn't in the touch. I know touched by an angel, TV show, whatever. The strength is in what the angel said to him. Verse 19 tells us that. As soon as he spoke, I received the strength. What did he have to tell Daniel that gave him the strength? He said to me, O oh man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Wow. That's it. As soon as he spoke that to me, I received strength. And he goes back to the angel. 
Well, now go ahead and tell me the bad news about the future. You've strengthened me. I'm ready to receive it. Tell me about this great conflict. I'm ready. Well, we got to rewind the tape. I mean, like that, that little blip is all that the angel needed to tell Daniel to strengthen him. What did he tell him? First thing he did, he reaffirmed Daniel's identity. Do you notice that? Oh, man of high esteem. Remember that phrase from chapter nine? Deeply loved, greatly treasured, highly esteemed. Before there was any move to action, as in before the angel was telling Daniel to do anything, he was saying, you are loved by God. That's where the strength comes back. Your identity. What else does God need to tell us other than he loves us? And he tells us in 10,000 different ways in the Bible. He strengthens him by reminding him of his identity in Christ. Now, he doesn't know his identity is in Christ. He just knows he's deeply loved by God. But we know how can God so deeply love us and treasure us and value us as sinners when he gives us his righteousness and he accepts us in the beloved. So identities first and then activity. And of course, Daniel's now strengthened. Uh, so he could just say, hey, don't be afraid. Peace be with you. He's, cut, he's just you know, throwing out whatever he can. I could he could tell him whatever he needs to right now. He knows he's loved. He knows God is for him and not against him. So uh, peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. And Daniel says, I'm fixed. You've strengthened me. And um, it's not over, though. Verse 20, the angel then says, okay, you're strengthened now. Um, do you understand why I came to you? And maybe Daniel has to step back and think about that question. Well, you came to, you came to strengthen me. Yeah, because um, it ain't going to get any easier. Look what he says. Now, I, I, this angel, I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. And so he's like, you know, the bell's about to ring for the next round. I got to go. I mean, that's just phenomenal that this is happening in Daniel's life. If you put yourself in his sandals right now. He's, he's given a message to strengthen him from an angel who just is like, basically, I called a timeout. I was in a battle and I got to go back soon, but I just came to strengthen you and give you this other piece of information. Um, it's going to keep going on. I got to go return and fight the prince of Persia and I'm going forth and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. It's not going to get better. However, verse 21, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of the truth. I'm going to tell you what this vision is before I leave. And um, yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. He's basically saying, look, this is, you're getting the, um, the insight into the future that nobody else gets. And there's nobody else but myself and Michael that can deliver a message like this to you. So think about how that's building strength in Daniel for what he's about to hear and how, I guess I could say in the church today, how do, we, how do we walk away from this with something? Well, the reality is for us, there's no promise it's going to get any better around us because the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms aren't going to suddenly lay down their weapons, are they? I mean, they're not, they're, they haven't stopped fighting even after the cross, after it was finished. They didn't give up. They're still fighting. What are they fighting to do? To, to keep the world from hearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And if you're a saint, to discourage you in your faith. They can't take your faith away, but you can be discouraged. You can fall back in the sense of you, you can be fearful. You can doubt. And so the same is true for us marching ahead. So we need to be strong in the Lord. Back to where we started. But we have someone far better than Michael the Prince or whoever this angel was. And I think he's back in five through eight. Now, some would disagree with me. That's okay. Uh, your faith doesn't hang on whether or not this person in Daniel 10, 5 through 8, is who I say he is. Your faith does hang on the comparison I'll draw to the person who sounds a lot like him in Revelation 1, 14 to 17. This is the warrior that goes ahead of you, who we absolutely know his identity in Revelation 1. Now, I want you to do this. I want you to stay in Daniel 10, and I want you to start in verse 5 and follow as I read about a person in Revelation 1, 12 to 17, and see how, how similar this person in Revelation 1 sounds to the person we studied today in Daniel 10. So you stay in Daniel 10 and listen while I read in Revelation 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. I report, you decide. I think Daniel saw a Christophany. I think he saw the word before the word became flesh, John 1. I think for, for the last hard days ahead for Daniel's life, he was given a vision of the glory of Jesus Christ before he came. My faith today doesn't hang on who the person is in Daniel 10. It's on the person who I know is revealed in Revelation 1. And it's the same for you. A vision of the glory of Jesus Christ as he currently rules and reigns in Revelation 1 is what strengthens us, beloved. That description of who Jesus is in his glory ought to strengthen our faith today. That's who's coming back. That's who's ruling and reigning right now. There is no weakness there. Therefore, that's where all my strength can come from presently and all my hope can stay fixed on for eternity. How about yours? Is that the Christ you serve? Look, I'm all about knowing that Jesus gets us. I like that he's compassionate. I like that he was willing to dine with the sinners and not just go to the saints. I like that Jesus Christ was accessible when he walked the earth and he is like us. And so he can get us. But there's something about Jesus that we can't get. And that needs to be understood too in our world today. A vision of the glory and holiness of the Son of God that is nothing like us. And that vision of the glory and holiness of Jesus Christ is what puts me on my face. 
So if you don't know Jesus Christ today, I hope that some of the things you understand about him, he was compassionate more than any, and he loved people more than any, and he went down to the lowest and least in society to bring them up. But what you also need to know today to fill out your understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ is he is nothing like us because he's the son of God. He is high and lifted up. And if we had a glimpse of him this morning, you, whether you believe in him or not, would be on your face. So he, in his grace, extends a glimpse of his glory to you this morning in the gospel. That this high and holy and other God become flesh, dwelt among us, went to the cross, hung on it, died for the sins of those who hated him in their place, took the wrath of God. This one who is unlike anyone else also loved you and would be willing to die in your place. So it both humbles you but then lifts you so that you just cry out to him, be merciful to me, the sinner. Because in his holiness, he is not distant. He has come near. And he has come near to you today in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you hear his voice calling to you to repent and believe, to trust in him, to cry out to him? to see him as wholly other than you and yet willing to put his life where yours deserve to be, bearing the wrath of God for your own sin. He becomes your substitute. He becomes your sacrifice so that you could receive his righteousness and live with him forever. Would you bow before that Christ today in your heart and cry out to him and admit your need to be saved? That's the good news of the gospel. And, and here's the greatest spiritual battle going on right now in your life. And it's actually happening in your heart today if you're not in Christ. Whatever problems you came in here today with aren't your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is this this morning if you're not in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4. Even if the gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's your problem today. Of all the things that Satan and his demons in the demonic realm could try to do in your life, the worst thing he can do and the thing he exists to do and hasn't stopped trying to do since the cross, is blind the minds of the unbelieving to keep you blinded in the dark. And no effort of searching on your own can get you out of the dark. You're a person in the, in the darkest, most vast area of pitch black without flashlight, without light switch, without fire. You have no hope to find your way out of the darkness on your own. That's the peril you're in today. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus is described this way. Though you are blinded by the darkness, 
He can blind you with his light. That's the last counterintuitive part to what we read today is the only way this blind person in the dark is able to see is to be blinded by a greater light. The light that Paul saw on the road to Damascus that he was blinded by when a vision and the voice of the glory of Christ came to him. So it's nothing that you can do for yourself today but respond to the call of God on your life to trust in Christ. That's how you can get out of the dark that you're in. The gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ that unblinds you with a much greater light that then you see him in his glory and you see God in his goodness and in his love and in his grace and you can live for him today. That's the good news I invite you to trust today. And for the rest of us, we should be blown away, shouldn't we? That whether you got saved at five years old in a Sunday school class or 50 years old with your face on the ground, this is what God did to save you. He unblinded you by the glory of Jesus Christ. And when you saw him and cried out for him to save you, and now that you surrender your life to him and want to follow him, that's all of his doing. And that should bring all of us to praise him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for your grace and kindness to us in Jesus. Thank you for the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the best news we could have today. It's the news we need to go forth from here stronger. That we're weak and there's a war around us, but we have the great one who has gone before us. And because of that, we have hope. Thank you for strengthening us in your word today as you promised to do. Amen.